This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapters 5 and 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is God's word. Please be seated. Uh, in our sermon and uh, teaching times, we've been kind of walking our way through Exodus, um, the story of God delivering his chosen people from cruel and crushing slavery uh, in Egypt. And the text that was just read to you uh, included three verses from last week's uh, scripture reading and sermon, because this morning is it's a continuation of the story, continuation of the conversation uh, that we started last week. As you'll recall, Moses is God's chosen human deliverer, and Aaron as his trusty sidekick. They are in Egypt, and uh, they have begun the ministry that God has called them to. At the end of chapter 4, uh, Moses and Aaron met uh, with the elders and the people of Israel, and they told them all the words and the promises uh, that Yahweh had given to them. They showed them the extraordinary signs that demonstrated that God would be with them and would provide for them. And, and the people of Israel, it says at the end of chapter 4, it says they believed Moses and Aaron and that they worshiped God. They bowed their heads and they bowed their bodies in surrender and worship to God. 
And then at the start of chapter 5, Moses and Aaron take the next step in their ministry call, and they go to Pharaoh, and they ask for Israel to be allowed to, to go into the wilderness in order to sacrifice to God and in order to hold a festival and worship uh, to God. And Pharaoh, in response, um, does not uh, grant their request. He doesn't simply ignore them. He actually decides to increase uh, their workload. He concludes that the Israelites, if they have time to dream about a vacation, um, that they have too much time on their hands and that they need uh, to, to work more and to work harder and to be more productive. Uh, if you read chapter 5, uh, Pharaoh uh, actually and arrogantly and, and irrationally believes that the best solution for the lazy Israelites, he calls them lazy three times, he says, the best solution for you is more work. And so you'll recall in the story, this is for those of you who weren't here, uh, Pharaoh uh, makes the Israelites not only build cities, chapter 1, not only make bricks for those cities, but he stops providing them with the needed straw uh, to make the bricks. And he tells them to go throughout the land of Egypt and gather stubble wherever they could find it. So the straw were these long stalks from harvested vegetables that would be treated and bundled and delivered to the Israelites. They were the backbone of the block, if you will. And he's now forcing them, in addition to building cities and making bricks, he's forcing them to gather stubble. Stubble was what the Hebrew word indicating the little bit of the stock that remained in the ground uh, after harvest. And so what uh, generally required a foot or more uh, length in straw was now uh, the Israelites were trying to put together, and literally the work was crumbling in their hands as they tried to build bricks um, with these little pieces of, of, of stock. And I, I said last week it's like trying to frame a house with mulch instead of uh, two-by-fours. And when the Israelites um, did not meet their quota on bricks for two days in a row, the Egyptian taskmasters beat them and asked them, why aren't you producing what you used to produce? Uh, I don't know if you heard the tragic story this week uh, on the news of a 20-year-old mom uh, who confessed to beating to death uh, her one-year-old son. And when she confessed uh, her crime to the police and explained her rationale, she said, he wouldn't stop crying. Last I checked, beating a one-year-old will make them cry. Irrational, nonsensical, crazy. That's exactly, from a national perspective, what Israel is enduring in Egypt. And so right after the announcement that God was going to deliver his people his people's pain and suffering and hardship increases. And at the end of chapter 5, when things were not going as well as they thought, the foremen, uh, who are most likely the elders of the Israelites, curse Moses and Aaron. And then in chapter 5, 22 and 23, Moses turns to the Lord and says, in part, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? You have not delivered your people at all. And so we looked extensively last week, obviously, at the Bible's teaching on pain and suffering. And I can't review all of it here, but God gives the biblical, consistent answer to the so-called problem of evil in chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord tells Moses, you have to see the present sufferings through the lens of the future to make sense of present sufferings. 
that, that if you see the present through the promised future of God, you'll see that the present is for God's glory and our good. And although you may never completely understand, you will then know that God is good and it's for our good that we suffer. The future will make sense of the present. Trust me, Paul said it this way, this momentary affliction is not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that this suffering is preparing us for. And so this answer, this response, this logic, it includes future promises to make our present pain endurable and even enjoyable. It's a promise on which our current joy is based And so we're going to keep reading. We're going to continue on in the story. We're going to look at God's response to Moses. He teaches Moses about promise and progress. Uh, He reminds Moses of the perfect promises. And he uh, teaches us how we can live as the people of promise. So promise and progress, the perfect promises, and the people of promise. So first, promise and progress. Here's the bottom line for this point. Everyone, since Adam and Eve who has followed God, has followed God, a God who loves promise and who loves progress. This is how God operates. He makes promises about the future, and he slowly progresses towards the fulfillment of those promises. If you look at verses uh, uh, 4, 5, and 6, we're going to study them uh, in a moment, but in verses 6 through 8, Uh, God is going to restate his promises to Moses. But before he does that, he reminds Moses, listen, your forefathers lived with, not yet met, promises. Verse 4, I established my covenant, my promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Verse 5, further, I hear the groaning of the Israelites held as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I've remembered my promises. And saying it this way, he's not saying that he forgot his promises. He's saying, now I'm going to act on my promises. Bottom line, everyone who follows God since Adam and Eve follows a God who loves promise and progress. And his timetable is, not, is, not, is often not our timetable. And his understanding of what we can endure in his timetable is often nowhere near what we think we can endure in his timetable. The first promise of salvation, the first promise of grace, the first promise of victory over evil, the first promise of redemption in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3. From the very beginning, God is a God of promise and progress. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God and to try life on their own. Adam and Eve fell to the temptation, they sinned, and they rebelled. While God held Adam and Eve completely responsible for their sin, God cursed the serpent for his role in the fall. God clothed Adam and Eve in the skins of an animal, and he points to the fact that another is going to have to die for their sins in order for them to live and be redeemed. But listen to what God said to the serpent, that the offspring of the woman, a human being, would bruise or crush Satan's head, and in so doing, his heel will be bruised. In other words, from the very beginning, the promise of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment, of course, of this promise made in the skins uh, that clothed Adam and Eve. He's the fulfillment of the promise made in the curse to the serpent that that on the cross, the serpent would strike Jesus' heel, but in striking his heel, Jesus would crush his head. And thousands of years go by until the promise 
is fulfilled. Everyone who follows Yahweh follows a God who loves promise and progress. Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, they were given promises that they would begin, uh, the promise would begin with one son, and it would end with a land full of people. But the promised son didn't come for some 20 years. And the promised people in the land, in one sense, didn't happen for 440 years. And in another sense, still hasn't happened at all. The Exodus generation, too, they, they were being saved by God, a God of promise and progress. They were being called on by God to believe Him, to believe His promises, even though their current situation seemed to indicate that God was out of control and He would not be able to accomplish what He said. This is, after all, the biblical definition of faith, is it not? CBR on Friday. CBR is called City Bible Reading. It's this it's initiative, it's this culture where a new city reads uh, the same chapters in the Bible. We read them privately in the morning in private worship, and then we work together through the day to interact with God's Word with one another. What did it tell us? What did God teach us Friday morning? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is, it's a definition, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We tend to define faith in theoretical, theological concepts. Faith is not being able to articulate doctrines and belief statements. Faith is trusting God and His unforeseen promises. Faith includes doctrinal understanding, but doctrinal understanding is not faith. Anyone and everyone who has followed the God of the Bible follows a God of promise and progress. But it's not as if there's no evidence in our text that God is working, that God is saving, that God has the ability whenever He's ready to fulfill His promises. God is constantly giving progress. He's constantly recording his, pro his progress in the Bible, and He does that to establish and sustain and strengthen our faith. God points out progress in verses 2 and 3. Look there with me. God spoke to Moses and, and said to him, I am the Lord. It's like me saying, I'm Ted Sin. The Lord is God's personal name. He's saying, I'm Yahweh, I'm Yehovah. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, there's great debate as to what uh, this statement means in verse 3. Some think that God didn't actually reveal his name Yahweh until the Exodus happened, but because Moses wrote Genesis, wrote, Moses used the name Yahweh occasionally to talk about God, but, but to me, I think what's going on here is the Lord is telling Moses, not his name for the first time, but he's telling Moses that his name will now be understood and more fully known and more fully seen in his actions and history, fulfilling his promises. He says that in his appearances and actions to the patriarchs, he was El Shaddai, literally God the mountain one or God the almighty one. He said, I was sufficient for them. I was sovereign in their lives. I was enough for them. But he's saying now in the place my people find themselves, my appearance to you will help you understand what I mean by Yahweh. I'm the saving one. I'm the redeeming one. I'm the delivering one. 
And so however you understand verses two and three, no matter what, it speaks of progress. I used to be known this way. Now I'm being known more fully this way. And think about it. God's saying to Moses, Moses, think about the promises that I made to Abraham, that he would have a son in his old age, that his great-grandchildren would journey into Egypt during a famine, that they would multiply and grow and swarm, that they would eventually be afflicted and enslaved, that God would deliver them, bring them back to the land of Abraham's sojourning as, though, as those, excuse me, who own the land. And, and Yahweh is saying to Moses, think about it. What did Abraham have when he died? He had a son and a couple of grandsons. But now look at what Abraham has. He's saying, Moses, you and the Exodus generation are the actual people living out the progress of God and fulfilling his promises to Abraham. So anyone who follows God and everyone who has followed him since Adam and Eve have followed a God who consistently enjoys making promises that demand faith and a God who has provided more than enough progress in regards to his promises that should engender in us and build in us faith and trust. So after reminding Moses that he's the God of promise and progress, Yahweh gives Moses seven particular promises in verses six through eight. Promises about the future that once fulfilled would make the present sufferings not worth comparing. And I've, I've called this, this point the perfect, uh, in quotes, the perfect promises for two reasons. I'll mention one later, but for now, seven is the supposed Hebrew number of perfection. So just for a mnemonic device, the perfect promises. There's seven of them. Let's look at them now. In summary, in verse six, God gives three promises of removal from the dominion of slavery in Egypt. In verse seven, God gives two promises on relationship between himself and Israel. In verse eight, God gives two promises of inheritance and ownership. It's within the context of relationship, though. Verse 6, removal from slavery. I will bring you out from under the burden of Egypt. And so while Pharaoh had said in chapter 5 that the Israelites were only worth the burden they could carry and the only thing they could own was heavy burdens, God says, uh, I'm going to promise to bring you out from under that heavy burden and that oppressive identification. I will deliver you from slavery to them. Second promise about removal. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a great axe of judgment. So to redeem is to purchase, to pay. God God is saying that with his outstretched arm, with his extended arm, with his flexed arm, he will purchase the Israelites out of slavery. And of course, since the Israelites, um, in, in these days, you could sell yourself into slavery, but because they were taken into slavery, God says that when I deliver you from slavery, it will include great acts of judgment. Verse seven, uh, two promises on relationship, once redeemed and delivered. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Two quick thoughts. The Israelites are not promised a deliverance into being their own Lord. They're not promised a release from servitude in total, but instead they will have a new Lord, a new master, a, a new owner. He says, I will be your God. The Bible does not consider uh, us on our own as freedom. The Bible calls freedom us being in right relationship with God. 
And second, assumed here, and I will take you to be my people, is an incredible, incredible biblical promise that we often forget and, and we usually disbelieve. That when God says that, that he will take Israel to be his people, in time he reveals that Israel is his treasured possession. And in fact, Paul says in Ephesians that we as his people are God's inheritance. So in a day and an age of the Bible, when a person's inheritance was their most valuable possessions, most valuable thing they had in terms of monetary value and the most valuable thing they had in terms of sentimental value, emotional value, for the Bible to say that we're God's possession, God's inheritance means we have incredible value with God. According to Pharaoh, the Israelites were a means to an end. According to the Bible, God's people are an end themselves. Verse 8, once in relationship, physical possession, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, generosity. They don't have to work for it. They don't have to pay for it. It's a gift. And so while Pharaoh took you and took from you, chapter 5, I will take you, verse 7, and I will give to you, verse 8. So these are the seven promises, the perfect promises that God gave to Moses to give to the Israelites. And I want us to think about how this applies to us in two ways, okay? I want us to think about how these historic fulfilled promises are a picture for us. And I want us to think about how these not yet fulfilled promises are given to us as well. So in a sense... The perfect promises are fulfilled, and they illustrate something for us. And in a sense, these promises are not yet fulfilled and are still promised to us. So first, how are these fulfilled promises a picture for us? We tend to think of the gospel. We tend to think of God's salvation. We tend to think of God's saving work in truncated and reductionistic ways. We tend to think that God has saved us in this way, that we sinned, we did wrong, we rebelled, we disobeyed, we did not obey, we failed, and God forgave us. We tend to reduce the gospel to this, salvation equals forgiveness. That when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the debt we owed, the debt of life itself. He, he paid it, he died in our place, and when he died, his perfect life is given to us. And so not only are we not guilty, not only are we not not guilty, but we're righteous. We tend to think of the gospel, salvation, this way, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification. We, we tend to reduce the gospel to having to do only with the penalty for our sin. And this is true in part. But the Bible also says that God's salvation includes deliverance, emancipation, removal from slavery, being brought out from the dominion of darkness. So God's saving work in us not, ha- not only has to do with the penalty for sin, but has to do with the power, for sin, power of sin. And so while the Bible's going to speak of this exodus in history in multiple ways, one of the ways we are to understand the exodus is that it's a picture of God freeing us from the power of sin, the power of darkness, and the power of evil. Listen, when Eve sinned, she didn't simply only choose to disobey God and earn a penalty, but she, in her choice, enslaved herself to the power of darkness and death. 
And so God's salvation includes not just a death on her behalf, speaking of penalty, but a deliverance of her from the serpent who will be crushed in the same death of that promised one. This is really good news. The Bible speaks of us as being already saved, as being saved, uh, I'm sorry, as already saved, as in the process of being saved, and that we are going to be saved. So listen to this. I want to kind of play with your mind for a second. At the same time, we are already 100% saved. We are 100% not saved, and we're being saved. This is what the Bible would say. We're, in a sense, already 100% saved in regards to the penalty for our sin. We're forgiven, we're justified, we're righteous, we're accepted, we're delighted in, we're reconciled to the Father through the Son. But at the same time, we're 100% not saved in regards to the presence of sin. Now, I realize that Paul says we're glorified already because in God's mind, we're already glorified and because he promised it, it's gonna happen. But technically, if glorification is the total absence of sin, death, and evil, even a little bit of sin means we're not glorified at all. So we're 100% saved, and at the same time, we're 100% not saved. So when the Bible talks about saving us in the future, it's talking about saving us from the presence of sin. But at the same time, this is what the picture of Exodus is. We are being saved in regards to the power of sin. At the core of We are delivered from Satan's tyranny and slavery, but we're still influenced by, haunted by, and at times we live like those who are enslaved to sin. And God is saving us. Listen to this in Hebrews 10. The Bible uses this past, present, future language all the time, and it doesn't seem to be concerned with how it might contradict itself. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected, past tense, for all time, those who are being, present tense, sanctified. Already perfected in position, we're forgiven, and we're righteous, but still being sanctified, still being delivered from the effects of slavery. And so Exodus, in the grand scheme of things, is a picture for us. When God physically brought them out of Egypt, when he brought them out of slavery, when he took them out from under the the burden of Egypt, and when he brought them to himself and, and he was intimately in relationship with them, this is a picture that God doesn't just absorb the penalty for our sin on the cross, but he frees us from the power of sin. This is why uh, God is saving us right now. He is continually freeing us from slavery to sin and the dominion of darkness. So that's a picture for us. Let's think about how these not yet fulfilled promises are given to us as well. Look at verse 8 with me. When God tells Moses to say to the Exodus generation, he says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. As a lot of you know, this didn't happen. These people did not enter the land of Canaan. This generation died in the wilderness after 40 years of wandering. Is God a liar? Did God fail? What happened? If this whole sermon is based on the premise that once God promises something, you can know for sure that it's going to happen, and that's going to help you in present sufferings, what do you do with the reality that he said, I'm going to give it to you, and they never entered the land? 
If you look at uh, verse 8, actually, if you look at it closely, you're going to see that God actually promised to give the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as well. It doesn't say, I swore to give uh, the land to their offspring, but to them. Listen to Genesis 15, 7. This is God to Abraham. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Listen to Genesis 28, 13. This is to Jacob. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. If you go back up to verse 4, verse 4 says, I established my covenant with them, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I established my covenant and promised to give them the land. But then in verse 4, it also says that they lived in the land as sojourners, as aliens, as those who could not own the land. So there's this obvious contradiction in the very same verse of Exodus 6, verse 4. What is the Bible teaching? Not that God failed, not that God lied, but that the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan that the Israelites eventually possessed in history was not and is not the ultimate land of promise. That the land promised to Abraham and to us is not the historic land they, they possessed, but is something else. I could not have possibly planned this next part if I had tried. Um, another striking example to me of God's sovereignty in our lives and of his living and active word. What were we taught by God on Friday in Hebrews 11, city Bible reading? What were we taught? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, a possession. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 13, these, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged or said out loud, they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way, I'm a stranger and an exile on the earth. People who speak this way make it clear they are seeking a, a homeland, a native country. They desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 39, after going through other heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews says this, and all these from Abraham to Moses to the Old Testament prophets, though approved through their faith, they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, Hebrews says that apart from you and me, New Testament believers, apart from us, Old Testament believers can't be made perfect. The word for perfect is complete, uh, the final of a long set of arguments, to finish, to accomplish. And the author of Hebrews says that apart from us, Abraham cannot have the fullness of of God's promises. And when Jesus returns, when he comes back, we will get together. We will have with Abraham, not the old physical land of Canaan, but in the words of Hebrews 11, something better, 
something heavenly, something designed and built by God. So Exodus 6 is promising us promise and progress. It is promising us a future where we are completely and utterly delivered from the effects of sin and death and Satan. Where we completely and utterly enjoy and believe and know and experience that God is delighted with us. We're his inheritance. And where we will live in a glorious and beautiful physical possession, a land, a country, a city, in which we will not be able to love that possession more than we love God, but will in fact worship God more because of that possession. Deliverance, relationship, inheritance. And to remind us of the context, these promises about the future describe the future that is the lens that will make our present sufferings endurable and even enjoyable. So let's close with a few thoughts on the text and learn how to be the people of promise. First, the text reminds us yet again that the promises of God are not ultimately contingent upon the belief of God's people nor the confidence of God's prophet. Uh, Look at verse 9. After these amazing promises, after the reminder of history, after God saying, I like to work in promise and progress, look look at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen. Look at verses 10 and 11. Yahweh tells Moses, go back into Pharaoh and demand that we're going to leave again. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, look, behold. He's like, God, pay attention. The people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And so just like chapter 4, Moses reminds God that he is not eloquent, that he has a speech disability. He said in chapter 4, literally, my tongue and my lips are heavy. They are too much. He is saying there's more going on in my mouth than ought to be for an eloquent man. And again, speaking figuratively, he says that God has not trimmed away the excess and figuratively made him more skilled in speaking, uncircumcised lips. So verse 13, yet again, God says, well, that's why I brought you Aaron. Aaron, come on over. Let's talk again. God's promises are not ultimately contingent upon man's faith or man's courage. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Promise number one, to be brought out. God, by his grace, intends to do it. So first, the promises of God are not ultimately contingent upon uh, the listening or the confidence and courage of those being delivered. Secondly, this text encourages us to be patient and to listen. Verse 9, essentially all the commentators agree the broken spirit is not a very good translation in verse 9. It's literally short spirit. And everywhere else, six times, I believe, in the Old Testament, these words are rendered as, impatient. They did not listen because they were impatient in harsh slavery. In 2 Peter 3, Peter's talking about how long it appears to be taking for God to fulfill his promises. Now, that was 2,000 years ago, so it feels like a long time to us. Peter says, the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises, as some count slowness. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. 
But according to his promise, one day the Lord will return and we will live in the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But look at the effect of impatience. It's not that impatience makes God not pull through with the promise. The effect of impatience is this. They did not listen to the perfect promises because on account of their impatience. What does God tell us to do when suffering, when in pain, when enduring hardship? He says, listen, hear again the promises about the future. Saturate yourself in the promises. Swim in the promises. Chew on and eat like food the promises. Wrestle with your heart and make a bigger deal out of the promises than we're making of our current trials and confusion. The word for listen is the very famous word, uh, Hebrew word, Shema. In Deuteronomy 6, this is what Shema-ing, if you will, looks like. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It looks like binding the promises on your hands and attaching them to your forehead. Shema-ing is God's promises. Uh, it looks like writing them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We tend, I, I tend to sit around and think about and obsess about and talk about incessantly my pain. And Moses is inviting me and us to bathe in and ingest and walk around in the promises of God about the future that will make our suffering present enjoyable. We'll be utterly delivered. We will know and enjoy his utter delight. We will live in a place of perfection worshiping him forever. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel is true. We thank you yet again in your scriptures we see today um, that our obedience um, is not the reason for which you save us, but God, help us to understand that our obedience will ratchet up our experience of your salvation significantly. Thank you, Jesus, that you have died for us and for our sins and that our obedience does not save us. And thank you, Jesus, that you live in us by your Holy Spirit. The down payment of our inheritance is your Holy Spirit inside of us. The deposit that guarantees the one day that we'll be in that city and in that land and in that country. The deposit and the guarantee is your life in us. Would you please bring us joy by your Holy Spirit? Would you set our eyes upon you and on the horizon that is the future and your return and all that we will enjoy with you forever? Would you please forgive us for making more out of our present sufferings than out of your, than your cross? Would you forgive us for making more out of our present sufferings than the promises that you have made us about the future that will make them not just go away, but become untrue? Would you please work powerfully and mightily in us and give us eyes to see you? 